Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Knowing who you are affects what you do. My guess is we don't think about it consciously on a daily basis, but based on what I've observed, it observed over life, it seems that so much of what we do, what we do day to day, how we think about the world, flows out of what we believe, who we are at our core. So much of our action flows out of our identity, for better or for worse. I've seen it with with friends, I've seen it working with students, you maybe have as well. If a kid is told constantly, year after year after year, that they are a bad kid for whatever reason, they might not think about it consciously, but sooner or later that kid is going to reach a point where they dig in their heels and they fight against any and all forms of authority every chance that they get. I've watched friends be transformed by marriage. Because up until the point where they got married, they had been told their entire life by friends, or excuse me, by parents, or people around them, teachers, whatever it might be, that they were lazy, or they were undisciplined, or they were unintelligent, something like that. And it was not until they were married, and someone was in their life who, who was committed to loving them unconditionally, no matter what life uh, threw at them, that they began to understand that, sure, they weren't a perfect person, but that did not mean worthless. Uh, Their identity changed, and that changed their actions as a result. You've maybe met people that have gone too far in the other direction, or maybe you've watched American Idol back when American Idol was a big thing, and you've seen someone go on the show and say, yeah, I'm a great singer. All my friends, my family have always told me I've got this great gift. I think I might win this competition, and they start singing, and they're terrible because they've been their entire life, no one has ever had the guts to tell them that they're not a good singer, and so they've gone on national television and made a fool of themselves. They've been told something about their identity, and that has informed their action. And that's true in human relationships, and so it should not surprise us that it is true of how humanity relates to God. God's presence with his people, and what God's presence with his people says about his people is what gives God's people their purpose. Last week, we started this series that's going to lead us to Easter that we called Liberated. And we're going to be tracing these themes across Scripture of God delivering his people into life with him. We kicked this series off last week by looking at the story that is foundational for those themes, the story of the Exodus. And so if you were here last week, we flew over the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus to see how God sets his people free from slavery in Egypt so that they might have life with him. And we saw that end in chapter 15 with God's people worshiping him, praising him for all that he had done to deliver them. The foundational event for the establishment of God's people is this moment where he sets his people free. Not because of anything they'd done, not because they were good enough or had earned it, but because of God's own love and faithfulness to his people. God does all this, he gives his people a new identity so that they might know who they are. And when they know who they are, then they can step into life with him. 
And the rest of the book of Exodus is fleshing out what this identity means. And at a very basic level, the book of Exodus breaks down into two sections. We looked at the first section last week, chapters 1 to 15, that walk through delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt. And the rest of the book is what we are going to look at today. And if you've read the book of Exodus before, you might be thinking right now, yeah, Monty, the book of Exodus breaks down into two parts. There's the exciting part and the boring part. And we covered the exciting part last week, so buckle up for what today is going to be. I mean, movies have been made about the first section of the book of Exodus. It's this incredible story of God delivering his people, and there are these incredible miracles to show that God is the one true God. Those movies don't spend as much time on the rest of the book of Exodus It seems. There are a lot of instructions, laws about who God is, how he's to be worshipped, how God's people are to relate to one another. It's not all that, but that's a good portion of it. And yet, even if it's not as exciting, this section is absolutely worth reading because it is here that God tells his people who they are and what they're to do as a result. God gives them their identity, which then leads to action. And that's how God reveals himself to his people, and the same is true today. We will not understand God's purpose for us until we understand God's presence with us. We will not understand God's purpose for us until we understand God's presence with us. Because from God's presence, we get our identity, and that identity leads to our actions, and that action leads to transformation. So to see how that comes from God's presence, I want to look at four passages of Scripture this morning, two from the book of Exodus and two from the New Testament. We're going to look at a few verses at the beginning of this second section of the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 19. Then we're going to jump to the very end of the book of Exodus and look at a few verses there. And then we're going to jump over to two passages in the New Testament that build off of those two passages from the book of Exodus. And my hope is we can connect the dots between the two, between all of them, so that we can see how God is calling us to form our purpose as his people from this foundation of his presence, then, now, and always. So the first passage we're going to look at is Exodus 19, verses 3 to 6. If you have a Bible and want to look there, the words will be up on the screen as well. But to set the scene, Israel has escaped from Egypt in Exodus chapter 14. God miraculously parted the Red Sea. They celebrated that by worshiping God with this song in chapter 15. And that's where we left things off. And since we're jumping ahead a little bit, but Israel has come to Mount Sinai. The same mountain that God had first revealed himself to Moses all the way back in chapter 3 when God spoke to Moses and called him to go to Egypt to flee or to free his people out of slavery. And now just as God spoke to Moses on this mountain back in chapter 3, he's going to speak to the entire nation starting here and going over the next few chapters. But it all begins right here. Exodus 19, verses 3 to 6 says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my 
treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you were to speak to the Israelites. I would hope that this has not been the case for you, but because it has been the case for me at times, I worry that it maybe has been. But there have been times in my life where I have assumed that when you read through the Old Testament, it is just kind of depressing. God's kind of angry all the time, and he just gives his people lots of commands and sacrifices they have to do if they want to stay on his good side. And then you get over to the New Testament, and God kind of lightens up a little bit. He sends Jesus. He discovers grace. He starts to be a little nicer. And aren't you glad we don't live in the Old Testament anymore? And you can maybe reach that conclusion if you don't look at Scripture very closely, if you skim over the Old Testament, only look at a few passages from the New Testament. But when you look closely, especially at a passage like this one, I hope you can see that that is simply not the case. What's going to follow from this passage in chapter 20 is is the Ten Commandments. And when you think of God being angry and giving lots of rules that he expects his people to follow, maybe the Ten Commandments come to your mind. But notice that they come out of what God says here. What's going to follow is going to be a lot of rules over the, next, the rest of the book of Exodus and the next three books of the Bible. It will sound like a lot of God just telling his people things to do if they want to stay on his good side. But it starts with God being gracious. The law is this ter- the terms of this covenant relationship that has as its foundation what God has done so that his people can draw to him. And if we don't see anything from that, we should see that before God tells his people what to do, he tells them who they are. Before God gives them an action, he gives them their identity. Now God will certainly tell his people what to do, but if we start here, it changes how we look at those commands. Because God has acted to bring his people to himself. He did not tell Israel to go out on some grand quest on their own, and if they succeeded, then they could come back to him, and maybe he would let them in because they would have proved themselves worthy. He has made the first move for a relationship with his people. These are not the words of a conquering king. These are the words of a loving father who is adopting children into his family. And God has done all this so that he can make his people, as you see there in those verses, his treasured possession. The goal of the Exodus was not that God would perform miracles. The goal was that he would liberate his people that he loves. And by liberating those people, he would establish them as a nation. A nation that looks far different from the other nations around them. So that the entire world would know that there is one true God. And that one true God desires his people to live in this way. And as they do that more people will come and participate in this relationship. That is why God has liberated his people. There is treasured possession, the thing he values above all else, so that they might step into this covenant relationship and be all that God desires for them to be. And all of this is because of his love, not because they've proved their worth. One of the shelves in my office, if you were to go in there right now, has a collection of drawings on it that I've accumulated over the last few years from uh, various kids that they have given me. Some of them, I think, are in this room right now, but I won't call them out. And if we're talking purely in terms of art, like I'm no art critic or art historian, but I'm pretty sure they're not worth a whole lot. Uh, They're written on post-it notes and, and scraps of paper and things like that. 
And yet, when you walk into my office, my guess is it would be one of the first things you notice just based on the shelf that they are on. And I'm not, those aren't there because I think they're really valuable. They are there because of where they came from, because of the story behind them. They're there because they're a treasured possession. God will say in other places, he didn't save Israel because they had done anything to earn it, because they were the cream of the crop. He saved them because he loved them. And that perfect love goes beyond anything we could do. And because of that love, he has acted so that his people can have life with him. And as he extends that love, it brings with it a call into a role to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Every other nation on earth at this time has a class of people that are priests. They're the people who handle the religious business. You go to them, they tell you what sacrifices to offer so that you can keep whatever God it is that they are a priest of on, on good terms with you. God says people are to be different. They're not to be like the other nations where they have one class of people that handles all the religious affairs and then they have everyone else that just lives a normal life. Everyone matter their age, their background, their occupation, their qualifications, they are called to be holy and set apart. They are to be a kingdom of priests that represents who God is to the world around them and draws other people near to God himself. They're called to be holy, but that holiness doesn't mean detachment from the world. It doesn't mean avoiding all the things about this world. They're gross and contaminating. I don't know about your house. My guess is it's somewhat similar to ours. Uh, we have one drawer in the kitchen that is full of napkins, most of which we've accumulated from the Culver's drive through It's not that we steal them or anything like that. It's just when you go through the drive through they give you more napkins than you need, or maybe they look at me and think I need more napkins than I do. And so you can build up a pretty good collection if, if you play your cards right, just speaking from experience. And most of the time, most nights, or especially if there are teenagers in our house, no offense, boys, uh, those are the napkins that get used. And they get used, and as soon as they're used, they're thrown in the garbage. Uh, but there are other napkins, napkins that teenage boys don't know anything about in our house, uh, that are a little different. Uh, they're, they're back in the pantry, they're cloth, they come with wooden rings that you have to put them in when you put them on the table, I've been told. And And when you use them during dinner, they're not thrown away as soon as the meal is over. They are washed, they're put back so that they can be used again. Those aren't used often, but when they are, they're used for a specific purpose. We could say that they're, they're holy. Not that they could, that doesn't mean they can never be used. It means that when they are used, it's for a specific purpose, in a specific way, and you approach them differently because of what they are, because of the role that they have, and that is what God is calling his people to be. They're to be a holy nation that looks different from the nations around them, not because they're not allowed to have any contact with those nations, but so that those nations can see who their God is and can see how he calls his people to live and how he loves them and how all people are invited to come be a part of this relationship. So after God gives his people this identity, he begins to give them the law. How he's to be worshipped, and how his people can thrive together as a community. So as a part of all of this, God gives his people instructions for how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this 
mobile sanctuary that travels with God's people throughout the wilderness where sacrifices are offered, where God can be worshipped, and where God's presence is meant to dwell. And so in the midst of all of this in the book of Exodus, God tells his people how to build the tabernacle. And as we get to the very end of the book, the last few, four or five verses of the book, the tabernacle is completed and we see the result of that. Exodus 40, starting at verse 34, it says, Then the cloud of God's presence covered the tent of meeting, meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. The goal of all God's commands is that he would be able to be present in the very midst of his people. Israel will be given all of these very specific instructions on how their camp is to be organized and what the process is of moving and setting up camp and and getting around and all of these things. But at the very center of it all, at the very center of that community and that arrangement is the tabernacle where God's presence dwells and where his people can come to worship him. And what is at the center of a community always tells you something about what is important about that community. It would take about five minutes in downtown Rochester to figure out, hey, the Mayo Clinic must be a kind of important part of this community because it's at the center. And something similar is happening here as God puts his presence in the very middle of this camp. There's a theological statement being made about how God tells his people how to arrange this camp. He says no matter who you are, where you go, no matter what part of the wilderness you are going to be in, when an average Israelite walks out of their tent in the morning, they can look to the same location every time and know there in the middle of the camp is the tabernacle, and in the tabernacle is God's presence because God is with us, and he is for us, and he loves us, and he's called us to be his people and a holy nation and a kingdom of priests to reflect his glory to the world. This identity leads to action, and the identity of God's people comes from God's presence. God invites his people into this relationship. He calls them his own. He gives them this purpose because of who he's called them to be. And then he comes to dwell in the midst of his people, to guide them in their travels, to confirm that he is with them and he is for them. Nothing like this has been seen since the Garden of Eden. When sin entered the world in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve could no longer remain in the presence of a holy and perfect God and live. And so they are cast out from God's presence. And there has been separation between God and his people ever since. And yet now, God has started to come near. God has started to make it possible so that he could draw close. God has done what was necessary so that he could call his people his own. And so that they could be transformed by his presence and they could bring transformation to the world around them as a result. And yet there's still a divide. God is still in the midst of his people and that is an incredible thing, but it is still inside the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle there are separations. There's an outer layer around the tabernacle. Inside that you get the holy place. Inside the holy place, which is only really only priests can go inside of, you get, you get the most holy place, the holy of holies. 
And God's presence is in there, in the middle of the camp. And that's an amazing, incredible thing. But, but only the high priest can go in, actually go into the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest can go in there on one day a year after they've done all the right sacrifices. So God's in the midst of his people because he's calling them to life with him. But he's still separated. And if we want the rest of the story, we have to keep reading into the New Testament. I want to look at just one verse out of the Gospel of John, and this is in a passage that we'll come back to later in this series, so I don't want to say too much, but John opens his Gospel with this rich prologue about who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and he keeps referring to Jesus as the Word throughout this passage, and he reaches one of his highest points in this prologue in verse 14, where he says that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. At the end of the book of Exodus, God's presence had come near, but John wants us to see that in Jesus, God has come more near than he ever has before. It's a little awkward in our, when we translate it into English because we don't have a good word for it, but when, when John says that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, he's using language from the tabernacle. He's literally saying that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And the, the message translation gets at the point pretty well by saying the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. At the Exodus, God came near to his people by taking up residence in a tent in the middle of the camp, and that was amazing. But in Jesus, God has come near by becoming a person. The presence of God in the tabernacle was incredible, but now God is not just in the midst of the camp, he's in the neighborhood. The presence of God has come near in a way that is far greater. God is no longer separated off from everyone else. God is living in the midst of his people, not behind curtains, but as a human being. So that as John says in the second half of this verse, we could see the glory of God fully and definitively in the Son. Jesus is the final word on who God is. He has come so that we might know God. We can get an idea of what God is like sort of by looking at creation. We can get an idea of who God is by reading his law that he gives his people. And that is all helpful and good. But if we want to know for certain who God is, we look to Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we find him perfectly full of both grace and truth. Being full of grace but not having any truth just leads to letting people do whatever they want and never offering any kind of correction even when it is going to destroy them. Being full of truth without any grace turns into yelling at everyone that they're wrong and never offering any kindness. Yet Jesus brings grace and truth together perfectly, showing us who God is so that we might have life. And God comes near in this way so we can be delivered fully into life with our God. Jesus shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are God's treasured possession by dying on the cross for our sins, by raising from the dead so that death might be defeated forever. And that is the truth that gives us our identity. If you are a follower of Jesus, I don't know what positions you hold or titles you've achieved or anything like that, but those are all secondary to the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead for you. That's our foundation. 
And understanding that identity then leads to action. And the identity of God's people comes from God's presence, which has been made known to us more clearly than ever through Jesus. Because the presence of God coming to this earth in Jesus transforms who we are, and that transforms what we do. And after Jesus dies and raises from the dead and ascends back into heaven, God's presence comes to dwell in his people through the Holy Spirit. God is still in the midst of his people, telling them who they are and how they are to live. So to see what that looks like, we're going to look at one more passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Peter is writing to people living in a time and place where following Jesus puts them in the cultural minority and makes life more difficult. And so to people facing that uncertainty, specifically because they belong to Jesus, Peter calls their mind back to the Exodus to remind them who they are and what that means for what they do. He says, you you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is writing to people that wouldn't seem to have the right background or pedigree to be a part of God's people. I mean, they didn't with the stories of scripture they weren't born into the right family and yet when peter looks at them he proclaims the same thing god proclaimed over his people in exodus 19 they are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation god's treasured possession they have the same identity based on the fact that god loves and cares for them and therefore they have the same calling god proclaims over his people for all time that they would reflect the glory of God to the world so that the entire world might know who he is and might participate in God's desires for them and the world. Because of the presence of God that has come to us through the life of Jesus, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit with God's people now, we have our purpose. Because Jesus has come near, God's people are able to fulfill what God desires us to be. God's presence gives us our purpose. We've been called to participate in this story of being set free from sin and death and to be liberated into life with God because God is present with us. He's drawn near to us through Jesus. He calls us to him so that we might be transformed. So we do the things that God calls us to do. We put off sin. We take on holiness. We love God and love others with everything that we are. We show others the love of God that has been shown to us in Jesus because that is what God has called us to do and enables us to do by his presence with us. God loved us when we had done nothing to deserve it, so we show that sort of love to others. Jesus died when we were his enemy, and therefore we put the needs of others ahead of our own. Jesus conquered death on our behalf instead of fighting for himself. Therefore, we let go of our own preferences. We serve and love those around us. Our way of doing things put us on a path that ended in death, yet Jesus has saved us. And so we listen to how he says life should be lived instead of our own because we know his ways are better. 
God has been generous towards us by giving us his son. Therefore, we are generous towards others with our time, with our gifts, with our resources, as we live out what it means to be God's royal priesthood, his holy nation. That's the purpose God calls each of us to because of his presence with us. And it is a purpose we can only fulfill together. Because God does not send us out as individuals, but as a community. That is what we gather here together to try to do week in and week out. If you're new around here, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you this is a perfect church, because if nothing else, they don't have a perfect preacher. But I can say that from the first time I was ever asked to consider coming to be a part of this church, I was told a story of a people that had been given a purpose, God's presence, that I was being invited to come be a part of. I've worked jobs, and maybe you have too, or at the end of the day, anyone with a pulse could do the job, and no one was really concerned about you as an individual. But I remember meeting the search committee from this church for the first time over a Zoom call, and I got off that Zoom call in my apartment in Denver, Colorado, and I texted a friend. I said, I don't think they even have to hire me. I just want to go be a part of that church. From the first moment, I was told, this is what God is doing through us. And we want you to come be a part of it. And I am grateful that I get to. And I don't say all of that to brag on Marion, but I say that to say that that is one tiny example of what it looks like to step into what God calls his people to do and to be. As we live day in and day out, as we gather together for worship, as we live as the church, God has not given us tasks to complete. He has given us a new identity, an identity that comes from the fact that God is present with us, and that presence gives us our purpose. God is calling each and every one of us into that purpose. I don't know what the last week has looked like for you. I don't know what the next seven days is going to look like for you, but I know God is present, and I know God is calling you into his purposes. So whoever you are, whoever that means, Since, be aware, ask God to reveal himself to you and step into what he calls you to do and to become. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are near, that you've not left us to figure things out on our own, to make it up as best we can, but you have given us your presence. You sent your Holy Spirit to be in and among your people so that we might step into the purposes that you have for us. God, I thank you for this church family that, as imperfect as we are, does the best that we can to try to do that together. So give us wisdom as individuals uh, and as a community of what it means to step into life with you, to step into the purposes you have for us. Father, for those of us that have decisions to make, um, sin to let go of, new things to take on. God, give us the wisdom, the clarity of what you're doing and how you're calling us to be transformed. Give us the humility to submit to you. Give us the wisdom to lean on those around us so that we might have life with you and life together. 
We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. Thank you.